0: Welcome to the Daily Theology Podcast. I'm your host, Stephen Oki. We are back. We are back from a hiatus that has extended since this past November. You may be wondering why the hiatus was so long. Well, for me, I was applying for tenure, which I got, and I was working on a book, which will be out in November. It's on David Tracy. So now that those are out of the way, we're back to doing episodes and interviews, Got a handful of really good ones recorded. The first one coming at you is this one where I talked with Pim Falkenberg of Catholic University of America. He does comparative theology. He works with Catholicism and Islam especially. And you'll hear us talk in this conversation about how Muslim migration to the Netherlands impacted his interest in interreligious dialogue. We'll talk about the importance of empathy and seeing another's view. And we'll also... uh, talk about how agreement and just getting to where everyone is on the same page is not in and of itself the main or final goal of dialogue. Also, we'll talk a little bit about the Dutch food and coffee culture towards the end. So stick around for that. Last quick announcement here at the beginning, we have started a Patreon account to help support the podcast. So if you go to patreon.com slash DT podcast, You can join our other patrons in helping us out there. We're trying to make sure that we have a a little bit of help covering the podcast hosting fees and all of that. And hopefully if we have enough patrons, we can start branching out and possibly have more podcasts or things in addition to interviews as part of this show. So help us out there. See the reward tiers. Maybe you'll get a shout out on the show. Maybe you'll get some sweet daily theology podcast swag. We will see. In the meantime, if you feel so inclined to go onto iTunes and leave us a review, that would be fantastic. And finally, as always, thank you for listening. Uh, Well, welcome today for the Daily Theology Podcast. I'm here with Pim Falkenberg, who is Ordinary Professor of Religion and Culture at Catholic University of America. Thank you for being here.
1: Thank you for hosting me.
0: I I have a first question I normally get to, but I wanted to maybe, just out of my own curiosity, uh, ordinary professor?
1: Yeah, that's something strange, I think, of CUA. I think it has to do with the fact that CUA originated as the University of the American Bishops. Now, of course, a bishop is an ordinarius, mm-hmm. Loci, as they say in Latin. And I think this is kind of, it, it just means that you are, not an associate or an assistant professor, but you don't have an endowed chair as well. Okay. So that just leaves you. So
0: it'd be it'd be full professor regular whatever. professor, okay. full professor, whatever. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I didn't know if it was a weird name for a chair or <laughs> No,
1: no. It's a strength the C wave thing. I fair guess.
0: enough, fair enough. Yeah, yeah. All right. Yeah. So the first question I wanted to ask you is how did you get into the study of theology?
1: Yeah, that's that's a nice question. I'm not sure when I started, so let me just explain. I'm from the Netherlands originally, so that meant I studied theology there, which is different from the liberal arts education system in the fact that you begin studying theology immediately for, well, in my time it was six to eight years. Mm. But I wasn't sure whether I wanted to do theology or religious studies. So I think in the beginning I had more of a religious studies of interest. Mm-hmm. I do remember uh, one of the reasons for me to start it was I knew my mother. I'm from the southern part of the Netherlands, where most of the population I- was Catholic. Now, not anymore. In the northern part of the Netherlands, most of the population is Protestant. So most people would tend to think of the Netherlands as a Protestant country. But the southern part is mainly Catholic. Now, my mother had a huge devotion to Mary. Hmm. and I, of course, thought, okay, I can see that, but isn't officially Mary? I mean, Mary is not the person that you pray to. Mm. There is also God. There is also Jesus. So why don't you pray to Jesus? Why don't you pray to God? <laughs> I, I had these kind of questions. And, and I, for myself, I thought it's more like I'm interested why people would pray to a female person while officially God would be male, something mm. like that. So I would say that's more religious studies type of interest. I did have two uncles who were priests, so mm. the religious motivation probably was never far away. But, yeah, I I always have been in between. So in my study, I started studying at the State University of Utrecht, which is a, um, uh, an institution that had kind of a dual program, as they would call it there, um, meaning that you had state subjects like exegesis, church history. These were taught by professors who were non-denominational. And then you had a number of church-related subjects like practical theology, systematic theology, And I started out as uh, being a um, work study uh, for the people who were working in um, religious studies, and more specifically phenomenology of religion. So Mm. during my bachelor study, I tended more into a religious studies type of interest than a real theological uh, study. And I do remember when that changed. We had, um, after our bachelor, We had a kind of a um, uh, in-between training situation. They called it training urban community. Uh, So we went to Rotterdam, one of the biggest cities in the Netherlands, and we did um, work on how, uh, let's say, relations, uh, local politics. Uh, But also we did uh, the type of work that... In France, the prêtre ouvrier, the priest workers would do. So I worked on the aluminium uh, ovens as a just blue collar worker. Hmm. Uh, And and having these experiences. Now, there was the same time in my year group, let's say, I studied with about 80 to 100 students at the State University, but next to that, there was a smaller Catholic institution. We had 12 students, three of them were female. Almost all of my colleagues were former uh, students of the seminary, so they wanted to do practical theology. Uh, One or two of them became priests. I never had that inclination, even though I ended up doing the practical theology next to systematic theology. So, coming back to the question, I do remember we had a lot of discussions on feminist theology that was coming up right at that time. And my female classmates told me, that they didn't feel at home in the church because the role of women uh, was not really acknowledged there. And for me, there was a new perspective. And in all these discussions, I discovered that I wanted to be engaged. And for me, that was why I ultimately chose to do systematic theology instead of phenomenology of religion. So I thought, as a scholar of religious studies, it's nice, but you're not really engaged, but you need some type of engagement. And that's why I ended up doing theology.
0: So you, I mean, you wanted to be, in a sense, like working and involved in the church and in, within the tradition. Was that what you mean by engaged?
1: Um, yeah. So it was basically to make the decision to become engaged in, in my case, doing dogmatic theology, engaging in the Christian tradition as a point of view from which you look at reality. Okay. Okay. Yeah, that was basically the choice.
0: unless the sort of quasi-objective, outsider kind of view exactly. that yeah. sometimes yeah. characterizes yeah. religious studies. Yeah.
1: Now, the funny thing was that my professor, and again, this was also, I guess, kind of a choice between two professors that I liked a lot. Uh, now, the, wa- the, the funny thing is that the professor that, uh, that taught me uh, phenomenology of religion uh, was uh, Jacques Wardenberg and he later on became a famous professor of Islam. But I never did Islam with him. (laughs) Of course, much (laughs) later, I thought, well, there there (laughs) was some meaning in what happened there. And then Ferdinand de Gijs, he was a professor of systematic theology. And he, um, around that time, let's say, developed this idea of theology was too much of a second order language. And we as theologians needed to be more speaking first order language to be, let's say, confessing Mm -hmm. uh, Christians. So he ended up uh, interesting me for the study of Thomas Aquinas. So I did my PhD on Thomas Aquinas. But I still had this idea of this engagement with my female classmates. So I said, no, I wanted to do liberation theology. Uh, Well, no, my first, uh, I wanted to do feminist theology. Well, of course. As a man, you cannot do feminist theology. Mm. But I thought, well, I can contribute or at least do some research on it. And I was interested in it in in Mary Daly, uh, who, of course, Mm. at that time was pretty radical. And I wanted to know, because I found out that Mary Daly did her studies, for instance, in Fribourg in Switzerland, because at that time in the United States, you couldn't study theology. So I said, okay, I want to study the domestic roots of Mary Daly's of feminism huh. and he said no no I'm not going to do that write something <laughs> else so I came up with a second idea and he said no this is worse and I came up with a third idea and he said no this is worse let's do Mary Daly then <laughs> so I did Mary Daly with a professor who was really wanting to focus himself on Thomas Aquinas but I ended up doing my, my PhD on Thomas Aquinas and of course I always have seen relationships between let's say people and their sources if, if there's one red thread in what i did it is about that uh, for it's instance also edward schillerbeck is another of course schillerbeck was a the famous theologian in nijmegen right he was a dominican friar and of course he had his roots in thomism as well now at that time he would say well there was a period in my life that doesn't have any meaning anymore i i just made a a clean break, so to say, and I'm going to do totally different things. Well, I was thinking, no, he's still doing Thomism, and, mm-hmm. shouldn't. and I was recently asked to write an article about that, so I had to reconstrue that <laughs> thinking. Uh, so, yeah, that's that's kind of, a, as I said, kind of a red thread. So I ended up doing my PhD on scripture in Thomas Aquinas, which is, again, looking at someone's sources and uh, how that influences his or her in case of Mary JD
0: So then to, I guess to turn that insight back to you who, mm-hmm. who are the you know those those founding sources or figures for you is it still Aquinas in terms of what you were studying or
1: it's certainly uh, for a part Aquinas yeah uh, because I, th- I think I discovered while working with Aquinas what I appreciate in Aquinas is his immense focus on God as the center of our theology. And I certainly think that helped me a lot. And it certainly helps me a lot in thinking about Islam, where, Mm. of course, you also have God as a kind of um, center of of everything uh, in Islam. I had at that time um, also relations with, or I became acquainted with David Burrell, Mm. the famous uh, philosopher, theologian of Notre Dame. At that time, he was called in by Ferdinand de Gijs, who was my, uh, the professor w- with whom I studied. And he started talking about the relations between Thomas Aquinas and these mu- Muslim scholars, like uh, Averroes, Ibn uh, even seen, uh, Maimonides, Jewish scholars. And I was, at that time, I just had my first job in Nijmegen. Uh, it was 1987, I started there. I started as a systematic theologian but they had to cut back on their fundings so in 1990 it looked as if they could not pay me anymore or i they had to let me go but at that time they were thinking about um, founding a new course of studies religious studies now religious studies is not uh, as we discuss religious studies here in the anglo-saxon world, this program of studies was more centered on inter-religious dialogue hmm. So I started thinking about, okay, how can you, from the point of view of Christian Catholic theology, develop a course of studies in which interreligious dialogue is central? And there, I found out that I had similar interests with David Burrell. So, yeah, I, you can say he was kind of my hmm. uh, my mentor, if you want.
0: Yeah. 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 It's interesting, because my own research, at least currently, is on David Tracy. And so my, oh. my access to Burrell is always, in a way, kind of filtered through Tracy. Yeah um yeah. yeah but i've been trying to branch into doing some some i don't know some follow-up reading on burrell myself yeah so so then it's in the early 90s that you start getting into interreligious dialogue as exactly. a focus yeah because yeah. i mean especially the last I'm, I'm guessing like 10 or 15 years of your work have really been focused on mm-hmm. catholic muslim dialogue correct yeah was it the sort of circle of discussion and thomas that was what drew you into that was it you lost one job, and this was mm-hmm. a new opportunity that <laughs> drew you in. It was a kind of a convenience thing that, that brought you into it? Was no, it-
1: I think it was mainly the awareness that most immigrants at that time in the Netherlands were Muslims. Oh, okay. So uh, we had a lot of Turkish Muslims. We had Moroccan Muslims coming in. Now, of course, they were guest workers at that time, which meant that they weren't – didn't want to stay there mm-hmm. they were to stay there only for uh, a limited period of time they also didn't have the intellectual backgrounds but still they were there as Muslims so they started to um, fund uh, mosques they started to uh, have all kinds of questions so and did, I you,
0: did you have some of them as students
1: no not yet so oh, yeah. okay at that time let's say in 1991 around that time I I had the idea okay the, the first the first, level of interest if you're starting from a christian perspective is dialogue with jews and muslims now i had a rabbi uh, as one of my teachers in my own education and in the netherlands you learn uh, the classical languages in theology so i had latin greek and then hebrew uh, during my uh, theology study so i had the idea okay if i want i can access the jewish tradition but i have no way of accessing the islamic tradition Hmm. so i asked the uh, the director of our uh, faculty at that time in uh, Nijmegen, can I start studying Arabic? Because I have the feeling that Muslims will not take you seriously if you do not know the language of their revealed scripture. So I started, uh, uh, together with first-year students, uh, <laughs> a, a kind of a um, quick course on, uh, an intensive course on Arabic. And uh, that's how it developed. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so, this, so the main reason was The idea, these are the people with whom we have to get into dialogue at that that time.
0: And what was the sort of hope for dialogue that you had at the time? What was the, the goal or the purpose that you were seeking?
1: Well, it was first of all, I think, if you are to develop this religious studies type of classes, and I uh, taught world religions, I taught courses on what does it mean, the word religion, um, and I tried to include dialogue elements in that. But of course, I was looking at that time for people with whom I could do that, and mm-hmm. as I told you, um, this first generation of migrant workers, well, they didn't come there for their intellectual capacities so that was kind of hard but of course then you find out your task is to help them Mm -hmm. uh, filling in forms, finding uh, going to the government etc etc so that was the the first beginning and then I tried to get some of my students interested in that and what we did there was a a biblical open air museum as they called it close Mm. to Nijmegen uh, which was at that time a catholic foundation later on that changed and they uh, there, there were some Muslims in Nijmegen who wanted to celebrate the anniversary of Prophet Muhammad and then the anniversary of Prophet uh, Abraham. So they asked me, can we collaborate on that? So that's where my first, let's say, experiments mm-hmm. in interreligious dialogue were. In fact, projects that these Muslims came up with. And I worked with them to organize, uh, let's say, lecture series and all kinds of events at that uh, museum. But then also brought in professor, for instance, Carlos of Kuschel, who is a German theologian who has written a lot about uh, Abrahamic relationships. And so, t- and and but it was mainly meant for my students to to make this subject of interreligious dialogue to make it work for them and to make it. As something that was relevant for mm-hmm. the field in which they would come.
0: Yeah, I mean, one of the things I, as you're talking, I'm thinking about is this experience I had last semester in one of my courses, and I was talking about the, the sort of increasingly pluralist context mm-hmm. that you know many of my students found themselves in. Yeah. So I mean, somewhat just it's not a thing they were consciously aware of; it just was the case for them. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I remember talking about how you know, like in this class alone, we were, we weren't talking about, you know, Christianity, Judaism, Islam, but more the question of people who are religious and not religious and atheists and agnostics. And I remember this one student being so shocked at the idea that there was an atheist in the course. And I I didn't know if any students for sure were, I just Mm. kind of assumed uh, statistically it seemed likely, I guess. And one student like gamely raised her hand and, and, and I don't know, admitted to it confessed to it just said she was mm. and it it was this kind of striking moment in the in that day and i think it kind of reverberated for at least a little while after of making the that kind of pluralist question a, a live question for people for whom it wasn't yeah. already yeah, exactly. um, yeah. and it, it makes sense to me that the like the influx of, of muslim migrant workers into the netherlands would be kind of a similar catalyst uh, for that question
1: so at that time I mean I didn't have Muslim students yet that came later I also realized that I I do remember I had um, two courses that I developed one was God in Abrahamic religions and the other was about savior figures but the, these were pretty theoretical at that mm-hmm. time so the let's say the real interreligious dialogue took took off the ground a couple of years later also when there was a second generation of muslim students who were willing to engage in that because i tried a couple of times but most of the muslims well it, it wasn't their problem mm. <laughs> i mean they <laughs> their problem was to get to get a decent mosque and yeah. to 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 into, well no integrate, that's, that sounds too positive. They they needed to find a place in Dutch society. So yeah. dialogue was not... And, and of course, and, and I remember that very well from the beginning. Uh, one of the um, pastors who worked a lot with Muslims in Utrecht, the place where I uh, lived at that time, he was really critical about dialogue because he said, well, dialogue means that you have a cup of tea together, but you don't <laughs> change anything. And I always thought, okay, well, that's 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 a very good... I need to keep that in mind, that dialogue needs to go somewhere, oh. even though in in, in the course of, of years I have also learned to kind of defend the the place of theological dialogue like we did today with, mm-hmm. with uh, Dr. Matt Depey, because it needs to have a place, but it, it also needs to have links to other types of dialogue. Mm-hmm. So, th- of course, the more active types of dialogue, but also what you call the dialogue of religious experience, uh, and, and all of that I learned to work with with a number of my students. So what we did, in fact, we brought three foundations together. So we founded an interreligious dialogue foundation at our university that was largely Christian-inspired. Then we had a foundation of these Muslim students uh, and, and people in, in Nijmegen where I worked with. And we had some trouble finding Jews because in the Netherlands, as you may know, in the Holocaust, the Jews mm-hmm. were really decimated. So it, it, there were a few Jews, but there was an institute for Talmudic studies that we mm. got involved as well. So that's how these Abrahamic dialogues got off the ground at that time.
0: Yeah, and you—I mean—you mentioned your talk today at Saint Leo. You're talking on uh, God's beloved children, mm-hmm. theological reflections on human rivalry and God's generosity. And I'm yeah. wondering if you could maybe give a little, a little, I mean, maybe a, a bit of a precy about what that what your argument is in that paper.
1: Yeah. So, the argument... Well, I maybe should start saying my specialization has mainly been in Christian-Muslim relations, but I've always tried to do that in the context of Abrahamic relationships Mm -hmm. because I think it is important, and this is something that I guess comes from David Burrell as well. He always talks about this idea of triangulation. Mm. I would say... Well, you need to have a third partner present in some way, either, uh, let's say, in, in in the flesh, so to say, or you need to study the scriptures as kind of a third partner because if you don't do that, it's only about what you and I can agree about. And, yeah. and, and the larger context isn't there. So yeah. this idea of Abrahamic partnerships has always been important for me. And as I said, until thus, thus far, most of my work has been on Christian-Muslim relations, but I tried always to be aware of the third partner being the Jewish dialogue partner as well. So I'm working on a book, and I've written, I mean, I'm now editing it, which is meant to be a Christian commentary On the texts from the Quran about the Ahl al Kitab, which is the people of the book, Mm. which is usual translation. People of Scripture is Mm -hmm. the translation that I prefer, and it's Christians and Jews. Now, the interesting thing is, the more I became engaged in these texts, the more I discovered most of these texts are addressing Jews, probably more than Christians. So I need to do more on my Jewish theology in order to really become acquainted uh, with, with the, the, the Jewish partner in the text. And then I was also invited, and this is the fall of 2016, to come to Los Angeles uh, for a kind of, a, well, what I always call a showcasing interreligious friendships. <laughs> <laughs> I, uh, I was with Reuven Firestone, a Jewish Colleague and friend, and Amir Hussein, a Muslim colleague and friend. Now, the two of them were locals. Mm -hmm. I was not. I was flown in from uh, from the DC region, and they kind of didn't get to find me a place to live. (laughs) So, in the end, (laughs) Reuven said, Okay, come live with me for a couple of weeks, and we'll find you a place. So, I was living in the Jewish household for a couple of weeks. But the good thing was that Reuven is a specialist in. Jewish-Muslim relations, mm-hmm. and he's also a specialist in uh, the Qur'an. He has been uh, the pres- one of the past presidents of the ICSA, the new uh, interreligious um, society for the study of Qur'an, Qur'anic Studies Association, that's the name. So we had all these talks in the car about the Qur'an, what the Qur'an mm-hmm. says about Christians and, uh, and, and Jews. So my talk today is kind of uh, coming forth from that, how does the Qur'an present Christians and Jews? Did they really say what the Quran says that they said, or is this the way that the Quran sets them up, so to say, in order to make its own point? Mm-hmm. Now, my point for what I discussed today is that I think that the Quran constantly criticizes both Judaism and Christianity, but Judaism a bit more than Christianity, as being religions that are confident in their relationship with God. Mm-hmm. And, and that's, of course, why they say we are the children of God and God's beloved, and therefore say, okay, we don't need to hear more from you, Muhammad, about who God is. We have our own show mm. with God, so to say. And that is something that the Quran constantly criticizes. Now, later on, there, uh, there was a um, huge tradition of what's called Tahrif. Tahrif means to, uh, to corrupt the text. So they started to believe... And that's what you read in the later commentaries that the jews and the christians did not really keep the revelation from god because the quran says that god really revealed mm-hmm. god's guidance right. to jews and muslim uh, the jews and christians but they didn't keep it beca- because they didn't they corrupted either the meaning of the words or the words themselves now the later tradition goes on to say well in these books which the Quran calls the Torah and the Injil, so the Torah and the Gospel, you had all kinds of references to the coming prophethood of Muhammad. Hmm. They just skipped them over or blotted them out of the text. Now, that sounds crazy. <laughs> but then, of course, I thought, well, isn't that what Christians have said about Jews? <laughs> that they didn't want to see the Christological meaning mm-hmm. of their words. So it's not so different. Yeah, But in the Quran itself, that's the point that I want to make. It's not about... The future prophethood of muhammad but it's about the fact that christians and jews close themselves off to hear something new about god so and that's what i'm most interested in so i would say ultimately the quran makes a theological argument it says you don't trust god to be able to reveal god's self anew to Mm. other people because you say, okay, we already have our history. So of course that would be in Judaism the idea of okay, we already have our covenant, we need nothing new. Yeah. For Christians it would be the universality and the uniqueness of Christ. We don't need anything new, the revelation is closed. Yeah. That's the thing that the Quran yeah. criticizes.
0: Does the and I, I'm I'm not a specialist on Islam, so this maybe it's an ignorant question, but is that sense of closed canon or closed revelation, is that also present in Islam though? Oh yeah, it, of yeah. course.
1: Because the Muslims would not recognize any religion that says, well, after that, God has sent a new prophet. So that's the problem that Muslims have with the Baha'is. That's the problem okay. that they have sure. with the Ahmadiyyas. And, of course, it's a problem that Christians have with Mormons. Mm-hmm. I mean, you can turn that critique to An- Christianity and to yeah, yeah. Islam itself. Yeah. Now, the interesting thing is, of course, I'm a Catholic theologian, but I've always been fascinated by the critique that Karabath has on the notion of religion. And it makes the, the more fascinating for me because he has this in his commentary on Romans, his Römerbrief-kommentar. His mm-hmm. And in that he says, well, the problem is, so what is called in Romans 9 to 11, which is a text that we talked about today, because this is the text in which Paul wrestles with how to deal with the fact that it the majority of the Jews did not accept the gospel, and then God let come in the Gentiles to make the Jews jealous. That that's mm-hmm. the famous. And to my mind, that's a text that is very similar to one of the texts that I discussed today. In the Quran says, namely, if God had wanted, He would have made you one community, but apparently He wanted the differences. Uh, and then the Quran continues, so try to emulate one another in doing goo- good. And in the end, God will tell you about your differences. Hmm. Now, for me, and Muslims will always say that, and I've studied um, Nicholas of Cusa, another medieval theologian a bit, who uh, who has this famous idea of one religion in a plurality of uh, of rights, una religio in ritum varietate, uh, which many Catholics cannot really place. It's too pluralistic for yeah. a Catholic philosophy. Now, the interesting thing is I and I'm not the only one, but okay, I've written about it. You can show how he got it from the Quran. in fact. Hmm. Uh, not directly, but okay, that's a long story. But filtered. But filtered, yeah. yeah, from the same verse. So this idea that God wanted plurality in order for different religious groups to try to emulate one another, to my mind, is what Paul says about the Jews and the Gentiles in Romans. Hmm. And Karl Barth translates that to say, okay, we're you read israel or the jews in romans in the contemporary situation you you need to read the church and where you read the gentiles in romans in the contemporary situation you need to read the world Mm. so the translation then would be that god of course appreciates the fact that human beings want to be religious like the church but it brings them nowhere Mm. as long as as they do not accept God's revelation, as long as they think that they can establish something by building on their religious feelings, only if they accept God, and that's of course the Zenkrecht von Oben uh, uh, from Karl Barth, God sends his revelation. Mm. Now of course that's that's a huge problem. If you wanna <laughs> if you wanna work <laughs> in interreligious dialogue, that gets you nowhere. <laughs> but there have been In the World Council of Churches in the 1940s and 1950s with Hendrik Kramer and Aaron Theodor van Leeuwen, two Dutch theologians who were influenced a lot by Barth, they said, well, the dialogue with the world is more important than the dialogue with the other religions, exactly for this reason Hmm. that Karl Barth gave. So that gives a totally different take on interreligious dialogue. I've written an article about uh, comparative criticism in which I said, well, this could Critique of the Quran looks very much like the, the religion critique of Karl Barth. And in both cases, it's a basic theological argument, namely that you cannot accept that God can really do something new, that God can bestow God's grace in a new way to other people that mm-hmm. we don't know yet. I mean, I guess that's a critique that is valid against all other religions. Of course, you need to say a lot more, but this yeah. point is a point that the Quran makes.
0: Yeah, I mean, and it, it goes to kind of the classic question of oh, if someone claims to be a prophet, how do you know they're a true yeah. prophet, right? Is, yeah. is what's the, especially when it's critiquing an order that exists that may seem to be, you know, divinely ordained order or, a you know, a, a, yeah. a, a ecclesial ecclesially validated order, yeah. you know, how do you question that? Yeah. Or how do you wrestle with that question? Yeah, I guess something this leads me to, because y- you've, you've mentioned it in passing a couple times, but you like the idea that, you know, you don't want the dialogue to get you nowhere. It seems to me one of the, you know, classic questions that comes up in interreligious dialogue is as you mentioned before, if you just have two people, you likely end up with just finding places of agreement. Yeah. Which may yeah. not which may be interesting but doesn't necessarily get you very far. Yeah. Or you may just end up yelling at each other. That's another possibility. Sure. <laughs> but that also yeah. doesn't necessarily get you very far. Yeah. yeah. And some, and I, I encounter this when I do interreligious dialogue and, you know, especially intro courses, some students struggle with the idea of dialogue being anything more than syncretism or wishy-washiness yeah, or, yeah, yeah, you know, yeah, yeah. We're, we're all okay and yeah. all these paths are fine. You get yeah. you get that side of it. But there's also, you know, the question of, of dialogue is just a, a, a secret tool of evangelization yep. and yep. there's no genuine regard for the other. and. Yep. I, I, I'm partly thinking about that question for you in terms of, you know, what is the goal in dialogue, especially in, in theological dialogue and yep. in, in different from dialogue of experience. Yep. But and just, just to wrinkle this further, I, mm-hmm. something mm-hmm. that stuck out to me when you were talking earlier about your own background and you were talking about uh, your mother and, and her devotion to Mary and a couple of times you used the phrase in between. Mm-hmm. And as a way of describing, I think your own religious experience, and then also describing the, the Muslim migrant workers who came into the Netherlands. And there's something about dialogue as being a kind of in-between yeah. experience. Yeah. And so yeah. I don't it, know if there's a real question in there, but these are... Th- no, I, <laughs> there's, there's <laughs> cer- certainly something I want to say.
1: <laughs> you know, I think that dialogue is always about the ability to be able to look at reality from the point of view of the other. Hmm. So the, the ability to shift your point of view. And I think, I mean, that's not only for dialogue. If you teach a course in world religions, that's what you need to do. So I, I remember that, uh, and, and y- you may know that uh, I, uh, I like to do that not only from books, but also by bringing my students in contact with religious mm-hmm. others. So that's, that's another form to do it. But, but my, uh, my basic point is that um, only if you are able to look at reality from the point of view of someone else, and in this case, it's likely to be another religious tradition. And you kind of get an idea of how really different that other perspective is. That's where dialogue starts. Mm. So I do remember there was one time, it's long ago, I, I had the opportunity to moderate a kind of a meeting that was called together with some people who were really well-versed in interreligious religious dialogue. And I had the honor to... Ask them the question, what do you think that dialogue is? And when they all had said something, and Mm. again, I was kind of the moderator, I think I said, What I hear in all of your stories is that dialogue begins where you have no more words. Hmm. As long as you think, Oh, I know what you mean, etc., etc., nothing's happening. Hmm. The moment that someone says something and you think, Wait a second, I need to rethink my frame of reference, because my frame of reference doesn't work anymore, that's the moment when dialogue begins. And let me give you one example, uh, which is kind of how I start my world religions classes on Judaism. I try to explain to my students, and of course I begin with, okay, what do you think is the difference between Judaism and uh, all other religions? And of course they come with 20 theories. (laughs) And then I tell them, well, the difference is Judaism is not a religion. (laughs) (laughs) the large majority of Jews are not religious at all. So if you (laughs) want to discuss Judaism, you have a totally different frame. Mm -hmm. And uh, again, we discussed that today. And it's also why, for instance, Jews are a little wary of using these categories like Abrahamic religions, because they say, well, there's nothing in it for us that makes that special. Now, going to your... Other question and I mean I skipped over twenty-five things, but okay.
0: <laughs> that's all right. <laughs> what,
1: what what what's what's the goal of dialogue? I, I do think for me, being a theologian, the goal of dialogue is theological. It is to know maybe not better, but differently about God. Mm. Now of course that is only part that's a good of good distinction, a, yeah. Yeah. That that's only part of a broader thing. So first of all you start to know more about the other. Mm-hmm. Because as I said, you, you start to look at reality from their their perspective, as far as you can do that of course, but okay, you try. And then you learn more about yourself. So that's the answer to the wishy washy thing. I have never had to study as much Trinitarian theology as since I started dialoguing with yeah. Muslims because they will ask you about it. Because the Quran criticizes them. Mm-hmm. So they will say, Okay, what do you mean Jesus Christ is the Son of God? So yeah. I need to do serious theology in order to be able to kind of come up with something. Uh, it, and I mean, it's far from trying to convert them or whatever. But it shows, I guess, that at least in dialogue with Muslims and with Jews, there are theological questions, serious theological questions. Now, I think also that's also part of what I've learned in dialogue. The goal can never be to agree. Of course, there will be things that you agree on, mm-hmm. but I mean it is clear from the outset that Muslims and Christians will not agree on jesus yeah Muslims and uh, Jews and Christians will not agree on Jesus, so if that is your goal, yeah it's better to do something else. The goal <laughs> is of course to try to understand the other better and therefore to understand your own tradition better and I would say the two together hopefully lead to a more subtle, nuanced understanding of God. Or maybe it is, and this is a, a, a dialogue project that I've been part of, uh, learned ignorance. So the idea that after all that you know, you know nothing yet. Mm. So, And that's not meant lazy, but mm-hmm. that is meant like, okay, there is a limit to everything that we can know. And all the different traditions contribute to our idea, both of what we can know and the limits of what we
0: can Yeah. Know. One of the things that strikes me is with David Tracy, who's mm-hmm. kind of my access point to a lot of interreligious dialogue, is he talks about the the ideal conversation, mm-hmm. the best form of conversation, mm-hmm. the one that we rarely really achieve. Yeah, 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 yeah. Is, is when both partners obviously respect one another, regard have high regard for one another, but when they're willing to risk conversion to the other is how he talks about it. Yeah. And the idea that you, if you really get to the point where you have no more words and you're yeah. really listening, there, there's just that little bit of risk in there that you might that you could be persuaded mm-hmm. by the other. Not mm-hmm. that you will, not that you
1: go that, into it well, expecting
0: yeah. to be, con, you know, yeah. to, to be evangelized essentially, yeah. but yeah. that if you're really giving them true regard, you'll you'll fully hear it out, and that they'll do the same yeah. for you. Yeah,
1: I have a nice story about that. I have a friend in the Netherlands. And I worked with him, and I was at a at a party with him, and uh, some other people were asking about what do you do, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So he started a long conversation on what we had done and how we worked together, and he said, "India, the there's one thing that I don't understand. Well, what is that? <laughs> Why didn't you become a Muslim?" <laughs> and I said to him. <laughs> I think this is the <laughs> biggest compliment that you can make me because it means...
0: <laughs> it means I've understood. Yeah. Yeah. I was a undergrad at Georgetown.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And when I was there, uh, Jane Damon McAuliffe was yeah. the dean, I think, when I started. And she gave... And she told a similar story about presenting something in... I forget the country, but it was a majority Muslim country. hmm And she talked about some people were... They were almost disturbed. Yeah because she had so understood but had not been persuaded and yeah yeah and 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 it it is a high compliment it is yeah and and
1: at the same time you're you're right that it is also disturbing because and again i go back to the quran the quran of course says well the christians and the jews should know better because they have received the revelation Mm -hmm. from god and it's kind of uh the, the the same in the christian tradition of I'm not getting the word. It, it's a form of ig- uh, invincible ignorance. Mm-hmm. So you can be saved as long as you have invincible ignorance. <laughs> what does that mean? Well, that you never were presented <laughs> with the true Christianity. Karana makes that argument. Sure. Now, if the Muslim tells me, no, you you really know Islam and still you don't accept. I mean, I can see that that is their greatest riddle.
0: Yeah. Yeah, you you no longer have a ignorance. <laughs> and, yeah, exactly. So I cannot be excused. Many others can, but I can't. Yeah. So maybe uh, th- this will shift a, a mm-hmm. little bit the discussion, yeah. but but still on the question of dialogue. You you teach at Catholic University. You've been there what seven years?
1: Yeah, I'm now I'm having my first sabbatical, so okay. almost seven years now.
0: And I, I'm curious about what is the experience of teaching. Interreligious dialogue at Catholic University, both mm-hmm. at a Catholic University in general, but also specifically, it was the Bishop's University. Yeah. It's you know, it's in yeah. the nation's capital. There's a there's a there's a, a place that it occupies that's quite striking. So,
1: yeah, well, I personally think that uh, Catholic University gives me opportunities that other universities wouldn't. Mm. So I feel kind of blessed of being able to do that. I must also say. Of course, I come from a context in the Netherlands in which the relations between bishops and theologians were not good at all. Mm. Uh, after the Second Vatican Council, you <coughs> probably know the story about the Netherlands being the most liberal country. And yeah. and, <laughs> and, and, and then, of course, the bishops fighting back from a certain moment. And, and But the problem was these bishops did, well, of course, I cannot generalize, but I do know in certain occasions that the bishops did not have a real good theological education so they were kind of afraid to collaborate with theologians Mm. now i've worked in the netherlands on interreligious dialogue for 10 years i've been part of the catholic delegation to the uh, national council of churches but i've never been asked by the bishops for whatever advice on islam i came here even when i was still at loyola uh, in in baltimore And I came across, let's say, the the, the secretary for interreligious dialogue. And he immediately said, oh, we have this dialogue event. Please come and and help us. No Dutch bishop had done that before. (laughs) So I I must say, is it incidental or not? I don't know. But collaborating with bishops on promoting interreligious dialogue works fabulously because it's part of our mission at Catholic University And Mm. I like to do it because they are also in the bishops' conference in kind of a minority position. They are not as well staffed as they could be. So wherever we can help them, Mm. that's great. On the other hand, I do remember I saw an advertisement, let's say eight years before I came to CUA, on Thomistic theology. I was thinking, hmm, I would not come as a Thomistic theologian to Catholic universities, certainly not to mystic moral theology because you know the expectations would be very firm on what you had to do as a Catholic theologian. In the field of interreligious dialogue, you have of course a little bit more leeway. Mm. But yeah, I, I must say, for me it has worked out fantastically.
0: Do you, do you find the students are like engaged, excited? So on the students,
1: I, I think one of the big advantages of CUA is every student knows why he or she is there. Mm. I mean, of course, I have had quite a few other universities that I worked on. Most students have no idea what the catholicity of the university. Yeah, <laughs> I, I guess that's the case uh, with many universities, also in the United States. Now, the problem—it's a thing that we've struggled with here. I, so, I heard, yeah. yeah, I heard that uh, Saint Leo's is no stranger to that problem. So at, at COA, I would say the students know that they are at Catholic University. After all, they choose to be at the university where you have four courses in philosophy, four courses in theology, in your, <laughs> uh, uh, Jeanette, uh, in your liberal. So, I yeah. mean, you need to take that. Now, of course, most of them then end up. Get getting into my world religions courses because they say, oh, I've had more than enough of theology, <laughs> and then of course I will say, well, here's 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 a surprise for you. <laughs> I will approach this subject theologically, <laughs> not from the point of view of science of religions, mm-hmm. because that's this kind of going back where we started. So I have felt myself to be on the brink between the two approaches all the time. It started started with my own study, then in Nijmegen where you had the, let's say department of theology and then the department of religious studies so i was one of the first in this religious studies department but i always did it from a theological perspective but of course if you learn arabic if you get more and more acquainted with islam you also start to teach islam but in the dutch situation i ended up sitting between two chairs because i could do christian theology in the theology department and i could do islam in the religious studies department but i was interested in the bridge between the Mm
0: -hmm. two and so, It's another in-between situation. Exactly,
1: and that's yeah. why I came to the United States, because the people at Loyola said, we want a Christian theologian who is specifically a Christian, but interested in Islam, and approaches Islam from a theological perspective, not from a religious studies perspective or a literary, etc., etc. You cannot do all of that. So I think I'm one of the very few who mm-hmm. does that. But I still think, well of course in my um if i'm guarded i say this is really an important approach if i'm a bit less guarded i say well this is the most important approach mm-hmm. because islam is a religion and it wants to be re- uh, 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 approached as a religion because it is talking about god so we need to do theology yeah. with islam and then of course the problems come back that we just discussed but well, you can never agree no you don't need to agree so this also Relates a little bit to dialogue and uh, polemics. Mm-hmm. Uh, you also touched on that subject. So I like, and of course, if you study medieval theology, well, most of it is polemics. The early Christian, like St. John of Damascus, it's, it's polemics. But the point of polemics is it only works if you understand the other So that's why the Dominicans in the 13th century began with these language schools. You first need to study Hebrew and Arabic, and only after that you can preach to the Jews and the Muslims and try to convert them. So there's the same, well, not the same, but uh, an analogous, thats probably my Thomism here, (laughs) an an analogous (laughs) willingness to go to the point of view of the other because, of course, everyone who does this type of work knows If I want to preach to a public, it only will work if they understand what I mean. Mm -hmm. And then on theological dialogue with uh, Islam, that's one of the points of difference. For instance, if you look at Nostra Aetate, Nostra Aetate says explicitly we need to promote theological dialogue between Christians and Jews. It doesn't say the same with Muslims, and that's of course one of the things that I think where dialogue with Muslims can learn from dialogue with Jews. So we try to promote it a little bit together with Sydney Griffith, who is uh, Emeritus Professor in, at CUA, and Zeki Saritoprak. he has a nursing chair at John Kelly University, another Jesuit university. So we try to get this theological discussion off the ground because it's such a huge part of our tradition and you see on the one hand people saying okay we need to make a better world we need to do all these practical things and even the bishops because as i told you i'm i'm part of this official dialogue between muslims and catholics but you see that the bishops have their practical needs their practical goals and Mm -hmm. the muslim leaders also so a theological dialogue is not happening at many places but i still think it needs to be done because if you don't do it the only ones who do it are the people who are preaching evangelization and let's say the people who want to convert muslims Mm -hmm. so there needs to be kind of a middle ground between let's say the, the practical dialogue and the people who are drive drive by mission to kind of continue this theological form of dialogue.
0: Yeah. No, that's very helpful. I think one of the things I, I think about a lot with my students and I'm constantly trying to improve upon with my mm-hmm. students is like uh, you you mentioned polemics and the idea that you need to understand what you have a polemic against yeah. to make a make for a good one. And I think that's a I think something that maybe is something our culture or Western culture is largely lost, which is you could just have polemics for polemics sake yeah, yeah. anymore. Yeah. And yeah. getting, I think when I, the moments when I can get my students to recognize their own ignorance, but also the possibilities of improving upon that and of growing to understand something else better, it, it's helpful. Yeah, I think they often, I'm not 100% sure about this, but I, I started noticing this more in the last year or two, The students are often struggling with not 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 consciously, but I think are struggling with. They they simply want to know the answer. Yeah. And yeah. and so much of what I'm trying to teach us process. Mm-hmm. And you know the critical thinking, critical reading, all that kind of thing. But it's it's more important to me. We were today in my class. We were we were working through Galatians and what okay. Paul's arguing Galatians. And yeah. to me, it was it's less of a question of. You know, what are the specific arguments Paul is making about circumcision in Galatians versus how do you come to understand that he's making that argument from reading the text? Mm-hmm. And, and getting them to that point is, I don't know, my, my ongoing struggle. But if they can do that, if they can present someone's argument well, whether they agree with it or yeah, not,
1: yeah.
0: or present someone's tradition well, yeah, yeah. whether they agree with it or not, yeah. It, it improves their own situation exactly. uh, in significant yeah. ways.
1: So, so that's why close reading of text is mm-hmm. often a way to get this process going. I mean, that's also one of the reasons why in interreligious dialogue, uh, let's say, processes uh, such as scriptural reasoning mm-hmm. are so important. Uh, another thing is, of course, I'm in the um, one of the chairs of the... Uh, comparative theology group in the American Academy of Religion. So this idea of comparative theology I- is another way to kind of try to take seriously uh, the differences as a way to learn about what we have in common. I, I do remember it somewhere in, in our conversation. Uh, we also discussed that why the differences are so important because it's through the differences that mm-hmm. you learn. If it's only about what we have in common, okay, mm-hmm. well you don't need to go out and learn or or to to dialogue for yeah. That matter,
0: yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. I think sometimes, like, if I an example I've used with students, I think somewhat effectively is you know, if you're talking to a friend of yours and you both love the same movie, mm-hmm. and, and, and that's all that it is, it becomes a really boring conversation, yeah. And yeah. maybe you're trading movie quotes back and forth and it's funny for a while, yeah. but but when you have a friend who does not like that movie or likes a different movie, and then you have some place of difference. Mm-hmm that 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 that's some some more interesting conversation to have or indeed if you
1: have a friend who has a totally different interpretation of the same movie yeah then you get an interesting conversation and then you have something to (laughs) talk
0: something you know meaty to work with while still having some kind of common basis to start from and so yeah good yeah Well, as we wrap up, I have a few less serious questions for you.
1: (laughs) All right. The fun part.
0: (laughs) So first question, are you a coffee person or a tea person? Oh,
1: coffee. Totally. All right. I only drink tea when I'm sick.
0: (laughs) That'd be the best answer I've gotten to that question. (laughs) Do Do you drink coffee all day or are you like a one cup in the morning or?
1: Three cups in the morning.
0: Okay. Yeah. And then if you have it like after 2 o'clock, are you just up all night? or?
1: Yeah, no, I, I, I mean, in the, so one of the funny things about the difference in academic life between the Netherlands and the United States is in the Netherlands, you get coffee at every meeting. So I was for six years in administration, which meant that I had 8 to 10 meetings every day. So I had way too much coffee. So I really needed to learn. Okay, after three or four cups, I stop. And by the way, Dutch coffee is much more strong than American coffee.
0: All right, I'm glad I pressed. Yeah. <laughs> uh, question two: What is your favorite or your least favorite liturgical song?
1: Hmm. I I think I probably would go with a Dutch song by Huub Oosterhuis. It, it has been. Uh, Translated into English as well. So Hypoosterhuis is one of the uh, generation of poets who shaped Dutch liturgy after the Second Vatican Council. And then much of it was later um, discarded by the bishops. So this is the, I don't know what the English title is. I would have to look it up. But the, the Dutch title is Lied aan het Licht. Uh, that, uh, the is th- that would be something like a song to light. So it sings to the light as something that motivates us and that keeps mm-hmm. us. Alive and there is one sentence in it that always moved me a lot. So it's it's both the text and the melody for me mm. these two goes together. I mean I could talk about music uh, for ages but <laughs> uh, and the Dutch is dat ik niet uitval which probably would be something in English that I don't f- lose my grip that okay. I get totally off the rails. So, it is a song that is often uh, sung in the context of funerals. Mm. Uh, but it is, yeah, it, it moves me a lot. Okay. Yeah. it's a great answer.
0: Yeah. Number three, what is the best thing that you have read lately?
1: Well, probably, I mean, lately means really lately. So, one of the things that sometimes are so surprising, I, I had a, a passage in my talk today about... The relationships between the Abrahamic religions as sibling relationships rather than marital relationships so Mm -hmm. this this talks about covenant etc etc and I had a couple of sentences and I was in the plane coming here and I read uh, part of Yitz Greenberg's book on for the sake of heaven and earth is the title and he had a number of sentences there that I thought wow, he's exactly saying what I'm saying. Now, of course, that doesn't mean that the things that I <laughs> like most are the things that I have already thought about. But if you ask me, what is your life? Lo- le- and I thought, oh, wow, this is nice, because it comes from a <laughs> Jewish author that I, um, that I really uh, admire in, in what he did for uh, Christian-Jewish dialogue. And he apparently came to very similar conclusions. So, Wow. All right. I found something new.
0: No, that's good nice. to be affirmed. New
1: footnotes. <laughs> I mean, that's probably one of the most crazy things of being an academic. Most of the nice things that you learn end up in footnotes. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Yeah.
0: Tracy has this famous quote where he says, uh, I don't write Christmas cards. I write footnotes. Mm. So <laughs> there you go. <laughs> Number four, uh, of whom or what would you be the patron saint? Of whom
1: or what would I be the patron saint? I would like to be the patron saint of an organization that tries to mediate between theology and music. Hmm. That's a kind of a, almost a hobby, not exactly, I've taught a course on it uh, and I think it's a very interesting field. So if I could ever do something on it that would make me the patron saint of that group. Do you play any instruments? Uh, Very little. Uh, But I've done a lot of uh, choir direction uh, back in the Netherlands. I have a son who is now in the School of Music at CUA. uh, uh, That's a good school, too. Oh, yeah, yeah, I know. And that's such a funny thing because I know... It was one thing that my father... So I started with my mother, so I probably should end with my father. <laughs> he always had this idea of, of devoting his life to music for the church. And I, I mean, I couldn't do it in this way, but that's so funny that you see, well, I'm not saying that my son does it, but I can see that he goes a trajectory that could end there.
0: Yeah. yeah. That's lovely. Yeah. And last question. Okay. What is the food or dish or meal that you miss most from the Netherlands?
1: Ah, well, that's a very easy one. Well, actually, there are two. But the thing that I really miss is actually not Dutch, but Indonesian. Oh. Because we had these colonies in in the Dutch Indies, uh, that's now Indonesia. We had the Rijstafel. And uh, some people who went to the Netherlands still remind me, oh, I'm going to have a so it, it's in fact an Indonesian dish that has uh, many small dishes, most of them uh, variants with rice, et, et cetera. And uh, that's something that we had. <laughs> the funny thing is we called it Chinese food huh. because it was made by Chinese uh, <laughs> who immigrated to the Netherlands. But what they made was not Chinese, but Indonesian yeah. because the Dutch don't eat Chinese. They eat Indonesian food. Huh. But they call it Chinese. So huh. Chinese food is what I miss. Okay. Apart from, let's say, more Dutch things like um, pommes frites, the, 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 the fries. Mm-hmm. Uh, but you can also make the case, well, that's more Belgian or French. Yeah. So let me stick with the rice stuff.
0: Is there, is there anything that you found in the U.S. that's close on the, on the pommes frites? Well, you,
1: oh, the, the, the fries. Um, yes and no. I mean, you can get fries, but you don't. have... we
0: have them everywhere, but there's such a diversity of what they are that. Oh yeah,
1: exactly, and and of course the thing is the way you eat them is different. So, mm. um, it, it's also again a cultural difference. In the southern Netherlands, you eat friet met surfles, which is from Maastricht, uh, where my two oldest children live. Um, it's kind of a haché. It's kind of a um, stew meat stew meat over fries. Sure. Now, I think what I the um, What's this called? The Canadian uh, poutine. poutine. That yeah. comes close, even though it has cheese in it, yeah. which the Dutch doesn't have. So <laughs> that's a minus. But okay, it comes close. But you eat it. You, you I mean, you do it like you take pizza from mm. from a store. Mm. Uh, so you 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 take it from a store and you eat it mostly on the streets. Okay. And then you also have these these establishments where you. They they have let's say like what comes closest. Um, you have croquette, you have bitterballer. Uh, you you can't find them in the U.S., but it's very hard. It's like meatballs, yeah. something like that. But you so you bake them and you put them in little. Uh, warm uh, cases, and you throw in a, a Dutch guilder nowadays a euro and then you take them out. Nice, it's called an automatique, and I've never seen that in the United States. And me, Doris, my wife, and I, and I always said, Well, if we fail theologians, we could start an automatique because they don't know that very. it's it's such an interesting concept. Yeah,
0: I know there used to be automats, yeah, yeah, yeah. But yeah. I, I don't think. I think if we still have them, we've essentially replaced them with vending machines. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So that's the American form. Yeah, so you're right. Not, yeah, yeah, not yeah, as fresh. Yeah, so. yeah, yeah. All right. Well, Pim, yeah. thank you so much for being here. It was great yeah. to talk to you.
1: Okay. Yeah, thanks.
0: The Daily Theology Podcast was produced this week by Matthew Tapie and Stephen Oakey. The music for the podcast was created by Matt Hines of the band Eastern Sea. If you haven't already checked them out on Spotify, go do that next. Special thanks this week to the St. Leo University Center for Catholic Jewish Studies, who brought Professor Falkenberg to campus and also let us use their office space to record our conversation. I'd also like to give a special shout out to our new Patreon supporter, Paige, who gave $5 at the, it's really more of a comment level. If you would like to contribute to the Patreon, go to patreon.com DTPodcast. Finally, if you haven't already, please leave us a review on iTunes. And if you're interested in more from Daily Theology, you can find us online at dailytheology.org, on Facebook at Daily Theology, or on Twitter at Daily Theo.